1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Today's episode, we will talk about Satan, our adversary. This is another episode of the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever have questions or comments, you can email me, doctrine for that's the number four, doxology at gmail.com, and I'm on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. Now, just to kind of introduce us to this topic here, we are in in this podcast series, and this is based on a Sunday school class that I teach, we are walking through a book on great doctrines of the Bible by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so in this chapter about Satan and demons, let me I'm going to give you a quote from Lloyd-Jones here in just a second, but let me remind you of who he is. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor, of course, but before he became a pastor, he was one of the top medical doctors in England. So he was known for his ability to diagnose medical problems, and and even though he left the medical field at a fairly young age, he was excelling in that field. And so he was he was known for his ability to diagnose complicated medical problems. Now, he says this as a pastor. He's he's speaking about counseling people in his church. He says, quote, I have to deal with people who have been sent to a psychologist, a psychoanalyst, or somebody like that, and whose problems very frequently are simply that they have, without realizing it, been besieged and attacked by the devil. And the essence of the treatment and of the cure is to enlighten them with respect to this, to make them see that what they have attributed to themselves and their personal sin and failure, perhaps even mental disease, is really to be attributed only to this mighty antagonist who is described in the Bible as the devil. And so there is a a top medical physician uh, who becomes a pastor and and is acknowledging here that yes, diseases and things they I mean he would he would say of course medicines are used to treat medical problems, but there's a deeper issue at a lot of these problems and and that's what he's speaking of there. So we have to remember and I mentioned this last week when discussing angels, but in 2023 our culture is one of extreme skepticism when contemplating things like angelic help and demonic warfare. Certainly we ha- we have wacky religions uh, but for the majority of us, when if if someone said, uh, like I mentioned a story last week of men that were trapped, a, a mine, uh, they were trapped in a collapsed mine, and after weeks of looking for them, they were found and they were in good health, and they said that angels ministered to them and and kept them alive down there. Well, that was you know people were saying they were hallucinating, and I admitted that you know when you hear something like that, if someone had some just astounding story and said angels actually helped me in that, we we immediately jump to skepticism. And in the same way, when when someone mentions spiritual warfare. Uh, we we a lot of times will jump to skepticism. Oh, they're just you know they're just overly emotional about everything. They're they're thinking way too much into it. That's it's not really spiritual warfare. They're just you know they're just stressed about whatever. And so we have to realize that if we are trying to live based on biblical truths, these things are a re- a reality. Okay, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers of darkness, rulers, authorities. These are there is demonic warfare. And so yes, we we have to keep that in balance, but I believe in general in today's age we are much too closed to the reality of the spiritual realm. And so as I've been studying angels last week, uh, Satan this week, uh, you know, that's that's certainly something that's been a conviction in my own life and just how I perceive the world. So today we are going to talk about the the focus is mainly on Satan. That just sounds weird to to say that. Um, now we will not talk much about demons, other than just acknowledge that Satan has, we'll just say, a team of demons that are are serving under him. But they are gonna their tactics are all gonna be based on the way that Satan 
works. And so that's what we'll be focusing on today, is what does the Bible teach us about Satan? Now, the Lexham Survey of Theology says this, Satan is the head of the demons and led their rebellion against God. He now leads them in propagating evil in the world. So there's a very simple definition of some of the basics about Satan. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about today is Satan's image. So w- when you hear the word Satan or the devil, especially, what's the first image that comes to your mind? And so for a lot of people, at some somewhere along the line, you'll be thinking of a red man with, with a pitchfork, right? So in the Middle Ages, there was a greater awareness of the influence of Satan on people. They were always looking for ways to resist the devil. And theologians of that time commonly taught that since Satan's downfall was from pride, then the best way to fight against Satan was to mock him and make fun of him. This was the greatest detriment to his pride. And and this makes sense to us. I mean, this is obvious to us. Someone who is extremely prideful has a very difficult time laughing at themselves and an especially difficult time if other people are making fun of them. All right. Even if it's an innocent type of joking, someone that is really prideful, they just, they cannot laugh at themselves and they hate it when other people are making fun of them. So in the Middle Ages, we begin to see these ridiculous portrayals of the devil as a little creature with a pitchfork and a tail. Now, this absurd image, it does, I believe it does harm to the reality of Satan's power. And so a lot more on this later. But that's kind of where the image of Satan comes, and certainly that's not the way the Bible describes Satan as the, a little dwarf man with a, with a pitchfork and a, and a long tail, okay? So that is, that is not a biblical image of Satan. Now, some names of Satan that are given to him in, in the Bible, several of them come from this verse, Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So devil means slanderer. Satan means adversary, okay? Adversary. Uh, the Satan is also called an accuser in Revelation 12:10, the very next verse it says, "And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of, of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan is our accuser. Satan is called Beelzebub, which is which basically means the prince of the devils or the the demons. He's called Apollyon, which means destroyer, or and he's the angel of the bottomless pit. So in Revelation nine eleven, it says they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek means destroyer or destruction. Satan is called the prince of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to as a great dragon. He's, as I mentioned in the opening verse to this podcast, he prowls around as a lion. So he's compared to a lion prowling. And he's called Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Uh, so some translations may have morning star. Uh, I have mine has day star, of course, but that in in Latin uh, translates to Lucifer. So that's where we get Lucifer from. And then also Satan is called the evil one. Now in Matthew six thirteen, this is part of the Lord's prayer. It says, "And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." Now, some some translations will say, deliver us from the evil one. And so I, I use the ESV, that's what I typically quote from. But in this case, I do believe that the ESV, translating it as deliver us from evil, is wrong. I do think that a better translation would be to de- deliver us from the evil one. And so kind of to, to back up that claim, I'm going to quote here from Daniel Wallace. Now, Daniel Wallace has a really cool ministry where he travels all over the world and photographs Greek or, or basically any biblical manuscript. And so they have extremely expensive, high-tech cameras 
that are able to they're able to use different filters to take these photographs and so a lot of these manuscripts that will eventually just just decompose we've able he's been able to get pictures and so that those can be digitally preserved for coming generations so a uh, really cool ministry if you look up Daniel Wallace uh, biblical manuscripts or something like that on YouTube. There would be a ton of different lectures by him on uh, some of the things that his ministry does. And also, he is a Greek expert, and so uh, some of the the historicity of the Greek New Testament, things like that. He's got a lot of neat videos there. But he says this, talking about the uh, should it be translated evil or the evil one, okay, in the in the Lord's Prayer. He says this, the adjective, talking about evil, has an article modifying it. This is, the article would be like the in English, indicating that it is to be taken as the evil one. And there is no little theological difference between the two. The father does not always keep his children out of danger, disasters, or the ugliness of the world. In short, he does not always deliver us from evil, but he does deliver us from the evil one. The text is not teaching that God will make our life a rose garden, but that he will protect us from the evil one, the devil himself. So that's his theological argument and and also a grammatical one that it should be translated as the evil one. Some other examples where the same uh, you know Greek construction is used, and it's actually, even in the ESV, it's translated as the evil one, are 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And John 17.15, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Satan certainly is referred to in Scripture as the evil one. Now, where does Satan come from? What is the origin of Satan? Well, certainly he's a fallen angel, but the first time we encounter Satan in the Bible, if you were just going to open from page one and start reading, the first time that we encounter Satan is in Genesis 3, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, the, Satan is just there. He, he's the, the serpent is just there in the garden. We don't really have a story of how the serpent gets to the garden. It's, he's just there. He's just in the garden, and he starts speaking to Eve. In fact, we are just told that a serpent spoke with Eve. Satan is not identified with as being the serpent until later in Scripture, and so uh, that that comes. One of the verses for that is Revelation twelve nine, and the great dragon that was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. So there, that that correlates there the serpent with Satan, and certainly throughout Scripture, the the serpent is often an illustration used for evil and for. Uh, for Satan, but it's used in other ways as well. There's a, a bronze serpent that is lifted up in the wilderness, and the children of Israel, if they're bitten by snakes that God sent on them as punishment, if they will look towards this bronze serpent, they will be healed. And of course, Jesus refers to this bronze serpent as a, a symbol of himself. Uh, so lots of lots of different ways that the serpent image is used in Scripture, but Satan is certainly the serpent in Genesis 3. So how did Satan fall? Well, in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, I believe these passages do refer to the, the fall of Satan. Now, in these passages, it is speaking about, in, in Ezekiel 28, for instance, it's speaking about the king of Tyre. That's Tyre, T-Y-R-E. But it, it says things about this king of Tyre, which would not really apply to any earthly king. And so as you start reading this prophecy, it's pretty clear to the reader that this is talking about someone else. And so this is common in Scripture, by the way. That there's plenty of passages that are technically referring to an earthly person, but are actually a, 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 a there's a greater referral to someone else. And uh, most most popularly, Jesus Christ. So prophecies about Solomon's kingdom are in a greater way fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is also the son of David. And so that's that's kind of what I'm referring to. So this is a, a common way that the Bible will give prophecy. Anyway, in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19, it says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, 
You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So here we have a lamentation over the king of Tyre, but then he is the signet, he's called the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Also, he's said to be in Eden, the garden of God. These precious stones are supposedly his covering. Um, so, th- so this is this prophecy. As you're reading it, you're you're like, well, the king of Tyre is not in Eden, the garden of God, and so here, this is why people will say that this passage is referring to Satan, and certainly I agree with that interpretation. La- on at the end of verse 13, it says, "On the day that you were created, they were prepared." And one thing I want to mention here is Satan is a created being. So we we do not have a a good and evil power, you know, battling it out from eternity past. No, the the Lord Yahweh is the is the creator of all things. Only Yahweh is eternal, is uncreated, okay? And and Yahweh created everything else including Satan. So Satan is a created being. In Ezekiel 28:14, the next verse, it says, "You were an anointed guardian cherub." Now, this king of Tyre is not an anointed guardian cherub, not an anointed guardian angel. Uh, it, the verse continues, I placed you, you were on a holy, on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So Satan was an anointed cherub. We t- I talked about last week when we talked about the angels and the cherubim. These cherubim in Scripture seem to be associated with sacred places. The cherubim covered, their wings were spread out over the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim were woven into the um, the curtain of the tabernacle. Also, the cherubim guarded the Garden of Eden. And so the these cherubim are in the sacred places of God. And it says here that uh, Satan, if this prophecy is about Satan, that he walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, these stones of fire uh, may be a reference to God's inner court, okay? And so this is like the the inner the inner, most holy, sacred places of, of heaven, God's inner throne room. Satan had access there. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So Satan is cast out from this this inner courtroom of God. Verse 17 says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Here we have pride here. Your heart was proud. You you were very beautiful, and you you gave up the wisdom you had of, of being in the presence of God, what you knew to be true. You gave that up for the sake of your own glory, your own splendor. So the Lord says, I cast you to the ground. And here, that makes me think of, you know, what other image in Scripture do we have of a of someone of the Lord punishing something and casting it to the ground? The serpent is cast to the ground, and so here it says, "I cast you to the ground; I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you." So pride was the reason for Satan's sin. He 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 corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his own splendor, and so he's cast to the ground. Verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, this last part is a prophecy of Satan's end, which will come in the future. Now, Satan has been defeated. The victory is for sure. Christ has won, okay? It is finished. 
But the final consummation of Christ's kingdom and Christ's victory over Satan has not yet taken place. I've heard this as being described, and I think this is a good illustration, as the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. So this is a reference to two significant days in World War II. D-Day is when the Allied troops invaded the beaches of Normandy. So if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, this is the opening scene, okay? This is a massive invasion, and it was very important that we establish a presence there on that beach. And if we could take that beach on that day, then basically the the war was over. It was just a matter of time before the Nazis would be conquered. And so D-Day was when you could think of it as D-Day, once we were successful, then the war was basically over. Now, it took almost another year for the war to be officially ended, but it was pretty much over once we were victorious on D-Day, and then the war officially ended on V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day. And so that's that's the difference here. The war is, it, it's definitely done. Christ has won the victory. Satan has been defeated, but there will be a day when it, it's finally consummated. It, it's Satan is completely done and put away for all eternity, all right? Now, that was Ezekiel 28. There's similar language in Isaiah 14, and this prophecy is, is again, from an earthly perspective, it's about Babylon, but it's really talking more about Satan. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says, How you are fallen from heaven, old day star, son of dawn. That's where, we, again, day star, that's where we get the word Lucifer. That would be like the Latin translation. How you are cut down to the ground. Again, cast down, cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. So there Satan says, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. In the next verse, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so notice all the I wills. This is this is pride here. This is Satan putting himself up above where God has placed him. And so this this is the the heart of pride, is is stepping outside of where God has placed you. Verse 15 says, But you are brought down to Sheol. Again, another reference to being cast down to the ground or, or cast down to Sheol. These are are similar things in, in the Bible, to the far reaches of the pit. All right? And so that's Isaiah 14. So Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are two key passages that theologians go to as far as the the fall of Satan and and what happened. Now, again, these are very general things, but essentially pride is at the root of it. Satan wanted to be like the most high. And he and he is not. And so he is punished for that. So that's that's kind of a the origin of Satan. Also, or or next, I want to talk about Satan's power. Now, Satan is an extremely powerful being. He is pictured in scripture again as a lion and a dragon. These are kind of the two pictures that we see of uh, Satan. Also, you could you could throw in there a serpent. Now, the serpent and the dragon um, are, are are sort of mixed. So th- when you think about a serpent, you could also think of a like a an massive serpentine type dragon. Okay, and so again, extremely powerful, um, scary figures for Satan in Scripture. In 1 Peter 5, 8, again, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so in our Sunday school class, we were talking about this, how Satan is, or, or if you watch an animal prowl, it, they they're waiting for the exact perfect time to attack. They're patient. They they study their victim, and they're they're just looking for a weak spot. And this is this is how Satan Satan wants to destroy us. But at the same time, he's like a lion. He's he's willing to wait for the the proper time to strike. In Isaiah twenty seven one, it says, "In in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword 
will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So again, this this large, powerful sea dragon is as uh, a picture in Scripture of Satan. So Satan is very powerful. Satan's power far surpasses human power. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus tells this to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So here we we see in the, the way that Jesus is talking about Peter and Satan that that it is it is Jesus' prayer alone that is that is guarding Peter because Satan demands to have him. And certainly there's uh, Satan's temptation and, and Peter in his own weakness, he denies knowing the Lord three times before the cock crows. So Satan is 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 tempting Peter in that moment, but it's it's the prayers of Jesus. Jesus says, he he tells Peter, You're going to deny me three times, but he says this, and when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. In Acts 10 38, it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So uh, from a human standpoint, we have we are just defenseless against the power of Satan. So these these people were oppressed by the devil and it was it was Jesus Christ who had to to heal these people. So we are no match for Satan apart from the Lord. Now, what is Satan's status? In Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says the prince of the power of the air. That's how it refers to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's called, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the god of this world. So that's another phrase to describe Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Christ, who is the image of God. And so we, we're praying as Christians, we're always praying that God would show the light of his truth, the light of the gospel in the darkened hearts of the unbeliever, the, the blind hearts of the unbeliever. It is only God who can, who can shine that light there. In Hebrews 2.14, Satan is called the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, that's Hebrews 2.14. Now, in what way does Satan have the power of death? Well, Satan is the one who brought death in the world by tempting Adam and Eve to sin. All right, and how is Satan destroyed? It is Jesus' death on the cross. And so Satan, in his temptation, in his wickedness and evil, he brought death into the world by tempting Adam and Eve. And so in in God's perfect way, it is Jesus' death on the cross that actually is the de- defeating of Satan. That's how Satan is conquered. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and by the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. If you were listening last week, rulers and authorities here is talking about the angelic and demonic realms here. So he disarmed these these demonic powers. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And it was his death on the cross that was a a triumph over them and, and obviously his resurrection. Now, John Owen, talking about this passage of of Satan having the power of death in Hebrews 2.14, he says this, All of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. Now, this was done in the death of Christ. When the sinner ceased to be a slave of death, Satan's power was broken. Once death was conquered and their obligation to death was taken away, Satan's power dissolved. And so again, it's the death of Christ that that defeats death brought on by Satan who has the power of death. Now, let me make 
something very, very clear here. I am not saying that that Jesus Christ had to pay Satan in order to save us, okay? Satan d- does not have... He, he brought on death by tempting Adam and Eve, and so in that way, he has the power of death, but I am not saying that this... It's called the, the ransom theory of atonement, that Satan... Uh, owns us, and Jesus had to pay Satan in order to get us back. No, we we are saved from, not from Satan's power, but we are saved from the wrath of God for our sin. When we sin, we sin against a holy God, and so we deserve his punishment. And so Jesus Christ was our propitiation for, uh, was God's propitiation for sin. He He satisfies the wrath of God by his death on the cross. So the the justice of God was satisfied. And so Romans 3 talks about this. God was both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So I am not saying that that Jesus had to pay a ransom to Satan to save us. No, we are we are saved from the wrath of God. Okay? Now Satan's power is also, even though Satan is a very powerful being and far greater in power than any human being, he is under the sovereign control of God. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul talking, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited, or to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul is acknowledging that that God is using Satan to keep Paul from becoming conceited. So Satan is still under the sovereign control of God. In Job 1.12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan is always under the control of God. Now, what are Satan's tactics? J.I. Packer says, Satan has no constructive purpose of his own. His tactics are simply to thwart God and destroy men. So some of Satan's tactics, he will always deceive and lie. John 8, 44 says, you are, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of, of the Jews and who are opposing him, and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So that is certainly a a big tactic of Satan, and that is to deceive and to lie. When he lies, it's his very character. He is a liar. That's, That's all he does. He also blinds the hearts of the unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. I've mentioned this verse earlier. And even if our gospel is veiled, again, this is Paul speaking here, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So again, we pray that God shines light on the blinded minds of the unbelievers, that that they can see the truth of the gospel. And this is, you know, have you have you ever been around someone that is completely blind to their own sin? And certainly we all are are in some respects blind to to sin, and that's why we need to be around other believers who can hold us accountable and, and point out uh, sin in our life and have the the boldness to do so. Um, so, so certainly we need that. But if you've ever been around someone who's just completely blind to their own sin, they cannot see it. Uh, this is the work of Satan. He blinds the those hearts. Now, Satan also he he tempts. Okay, he tempts us in many ways. As I was kind of meditating on on how Satan tempts us, I, I wrote down several of these. He has the ability to make the most evil and wicked things seem beautiful. Satan makes adultery look like the best kind of romance. He makes drugs and alcoholism look like the height of enjoyment. He makes debt look like a blessing. He makes church look boring. He makes the Bible seem irrelevant. He makes selfishness praiseworthy and sacrificial love a weakness. He makes children seem like a curse or a burden. So Satan basically 
is the the king of opposite world. He he flips everything over. Everything that is beautiful, he he makes it to seem boring or um, normal, and he, he hides the beauty and, and even can make it seem bad at times. And everything that is wicked and evil, he will make to seem beautiful. That is how he, he that, that is the power he has in temptation. John Calvin said to Satan, no sight is beautiful but deformity itself, and no smell is sweet but filth and nastiness. John Bunyan said, as Satan can tell how to suit temptations for you in the day of your want, so he has those that can entangle you in the day of your fullness. So whether you are in a really bad time or a really good time, Satan has his ways of tempting you. So he certainly tempts. He also discourages believers and and unbelievers. He discourages people. Lloyd-Jones says this, Quote, he is responsible, that says Satan, is responsible for most of our moodiness, our depressions, our sense of hopelessness, and our sense of despair. Indeed, you can be certain of this. Every time you are turned in upon yourself and find yourself looking at your weakness, your failure, your disability, or anything else in yourself, when you are looking at yourself like that, it is always the devil. I do not hesitate to say that the devil turns men and women in upon themselves, knowing that when they are looking at themselves, they are not looking at God. And so he produces all these moods and depressions within us. Again, I think that's a wonderful quote. And we have to realize that, like Lloyd-Jones says, our moodiness, our depressions, our sense of hopelessness, there is spiritual warfare. A lot of times we just say, oh, this, there's nothing spiritual going on. This is just, you know, this, this is just my time of life. But he's saying that Satan uses all of those things to turn us inward. And that that is so true as well. When we are focused on ourself, our own desires, what we want, that is the one of the the key things that that is it's prideful and that is where satan wants us to be he wants us to be reflecting inward on ourselves because like lloyd jones says when we're doing that we will not be looking at god or or the things uh, that god wants us to be focusing on and so that is a that satan discourages us and in our discouragement he wants us to turn inward on ourselves the last thing I want to mention is Satan accuses or condemns us. Revelation 12:10 said, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God." This is what Satan does. He accuses us day and night before God. He his accusations never let up. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We're, we're told several times in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He is our advocate. He is interceding for us. So all of these accusations by Satan against the believer, Jesus Christ is, is interceding for us. So those accusations do not hold up in the courtroom of God. Now, next I want to talk about how to resist Satan. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Let me, let me just pause right there. A, a lot of times we hear this next phrase, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you got to remember the very first part of that verse. You have to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's where you start. You are you are submitting yourselves to God. You're saying, God, you are Lord of my life. I submit to you. I submit to your word. That's where we start, okay? Then the verse says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I have a, a question here. Does it Does the Bible ever tell us specifically to flee the devil? I asked this uh, question in Sunday school class. Does it tell us to flee the devil? Now, you may say, yes, absolutely. Uh, I would argue that the the Bible does say that we are to flee 
temptation. And obviously, I agree 100%. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Um, you think about Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife and, and sexual temptation there. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In 1 Timothy 6.11, talking about the love of money, Paul says, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Uh, Jesus talks about if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So we are certainly to flee from temptation that causes us to sin. But when it comes to Satan, we are told to submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so how are we supposed to resist the devil? Okay. Well, first off, what we are not told to do in Scripture is to rebuke Satan. And this is a bit of a, a deep concept here. So just hang with me, and hopefully I can convey this in, in what I'm trying to say. All right, so let me take you to Jude. Now, there's only one chapter of Jude. So we when I say Jude 8 through 10, that's just the verses, 8 through 10. And so the the context here that is Jude is is basically giving a judgment on false teachers in the church. And these false teachers are in in verse 4 Jude says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ. So they they're 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 uh, perverting the grace of God into emotionalism and, and sensuality, okay? They're denying the, the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So that so he's, he's condemning false teachers, okay? So again, talking about false prophets, false teachers, he says in, in Jude 8, yet in like manner, these people, these, these false teachers also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They, they are blaspheming the glorious ones. Remember that phrase. And, and so let me read 2 Peter 2.10. This same phrase is used, to blaspheme the glorious ones, and it's the same context. Peter is talking about false teachers and the way they are rebuking the glorious ones. So in 2 Peter 2.10, it says, talking about the false teachers, they're bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So there's there's that same phrase, blaspheming the glorious ones. It's talking about false teachers blaspheming the glorious ones. Now, who are the glorious ones? That's that that would be the question. And when we read the next verse in Jude, so Jude 8 talks about blaspheming the glorious ones. In Jude 9, the next verse, Jude is going to give us a, an example of what we should do. He says in, in verse 9, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Continuing on to verse 10, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So let me, hopefully I can make this really clear. These false teachers are blaspheming the glorious ones. And if we look at the example that Jude gives us, we are told that basically these glorious ones are wicked angels or, or demons. They are blaspheming the glorious ones, and and false teachers are the ones doing that. And we're told in Scripture that we obviously we don't want to be a false teacher. We don't want to act the way false teachers were acting, and they are pronouncing these blasphemous judgments on these glorious ones. So that we're told that Michael the archangel doesn't even do this. He he doesn't himself presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment or, or to to um, to speak against these, he said, Michael instead says, the Lord rebuke you. Everything that Michael is doing as far as rebukes of these, uh, of Satan and demons, he, he says, the Lord rebuke you. John MacArthur says of this passage, he says, rather than personally cursing such a powerful angel as Satan, Michael deferred to the ultimate sovereign power of God. This is the supreme illustration of how Christians are to deal with Satan and demons. Believers are not to address them, 
but rather to seek the Lord's intervening power against them. All right? And so the these these false teachers they are they seek wealth and popularity again they're appealing to sensuality and, and emotional uh emotional things like that and at the same time they arrogantly rebuke members of the spiritual realm which they know nothing about is what the the bible is saying Macar- macarthur continues he says apostate teachers in their brash bold egotistical infatuation with imagined power and authority rail on that which they don't even understand. So this is this is here's the picture of what the Bible is is condemning here as a false teacher. It is someone who is is calling Satan names, like like silly little elementary school um uh playground names. So it, it he's saying these false teachers they are they they're they're bold and brash and arrogant and they're calling Satan and demons these these names um we're told in scripture actually that we are not to do that. We are to say the Lord rebuke you. But but me personally, I'm not to go calling these these uh, calling Satan and demons names. Martin Lloyd Jones again talking about this same idea. He says we should never speak loosely or flippantly about the devil. I am often appalled as I hear good Christian people referring jocularly to the devil. The Bible never refers to him in that light in flippant manner. It emphasizes his power and status. So resisting the devil, don't don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we should honor Satan. What I'm saying is that we should avoid this uh, like poking fun at him, uh, silly, silly talk type of stuff that you hear sometimes people people talk to Satan this way. And so why would why would the Bible be speaking against this type of activity? Well, one, it's because I think it takes away from the seriousness of spiritual warfare and actually the the power that Satan does have. When when we're just calling him silly names and um and, and you, you again, like you hear false teachers do, they they're referring to Satan in a in a flippant uh light way, almost almost like joking um, and, and and picking on Satan as if again as if they're on an elementary playground. Okay, this takes away from the serious nature of spiritual warfare. So an illustration for this: when you are in football, when you're up against a very talented opponent, a, a strong opponent. Let's say that the other team has a very very good quarterback, extremely talented. Okay, there's a couple different ways you can approach the up that upcoming game. The week before, you could make locker room jokes about the quarterback and have a, a picture of his face up on the wall that you throw darts at. You could call him fat and slow and and all these different names, and you can say, "Oh, he's not really that good." And you you know you could do all these things like that and and say this pointless, silly stuff to try to build yourself up against this very talented quarterback. That's that's one approach, and and I would say that's kind of an analogy for this these false teachers that scripture's talking about they're referring to satan and the demonic realm things that they really don't know much about they're referring to satan in these these light ways that's one way that you could go against that football opponent that really good quarterback the other way to do that is to acknowledge that they are indeed very talented. They, they, okay. So you're acknowledging that Satan certainly is a, a good tempter. He is good at what he does. You're acknowledging their talent or skill or ability. You're studying their tendencies in, in football. Maybe you have game film of of things that they've done before, or maybe you played the same quarterback last year and you know, you know how he attacked your team and and things like that. So you're studying the those things you're taking it seriously and you're thinking about what this quarterback is doing you're not just calling them silly names just to try to make yourself feel better you're you're actually taking it serious and i think that's the way the bible intends for us to go about spiritual warfare it's not just coming up with with dumb names to call satan and getting everybody you know rallied up in a tizzy and then we get the you know get some music going and let's just play that on loop and let's you know, walk around stomping Satan on his head. That is not the way Scripture talks about resisting the devil. So how does Scripture talk about resisting the devil? Well, 
I'm glad you asked. Uh, Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 18. I can basically just read these because this is, this is how we're supposed to resist the devil. Ephesians 6, verse, starting in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Again, we are to flee temptation, but we are told to resist or stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, we flee temptation, we stand firm against the devil. Stand there, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. I love that. In all circumstances, you you must have faith. That is the that is the shield that you must have. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Remember, Satan prowls like a lion, and so don't be so inward focused that you can't see him. You need to be alert, looking around, looking for danger. So it says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we put on the armor of God. That is how we resist Satan. This is None of this is done in our own strength. Okay, this is all done because we we know that we stand we we are new creations. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation and we we stand in in the power of Christ alone, okay? And so that's that's how we resist Satan. Now, what is Satan's destiny? Revelation 20:10 says, "And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were." And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's that's his destiny. In closing, remember, we are in a spiritual battle. Satan is a serious adversary. Jesus Christ is a mighty savior. We resist or stand firm against Satan only by the love of God the Father, the work of God the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, in closing, let me let me string together some passages from Romans 8. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.33 and 34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A few verses down, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 